0: Hello and welcome back to the Pint of Politics podcast, um, a podcast where we attempt to dissect some of the political news in as light-hearted a tone as we possibly can. I'm joined once again by my co-host and good friend Sam Howard. How are we doing today, Sam? I'm
1: quite well, you mate.
0: Yeah, not bad, How not bad. You? Since since the last two days, anyway, when we spoke. Obviously. Yeah, <laughs> I know, you miss me. Um, I'm also delighted to say we're joined by a guest very kindly giving up uh, his time to be on the podcast today um, and it is George Aylitz. He is uh, a man who stood as an MP in the past, is uh, a keen uh, left-wing activist, um, a keen Labour activist, has been a me- member of the Labour Party for a number of years now and he's happily agreed to give up some of his time to have a little chat with us today. So George, how are we?
2: I'm not so bad. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, not bad at all. as, as good as one can be in the in the current climate, I, I think.
2: It's just the weather's terrible. That's the problem. That's what's making down a little bit harder. But um uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. And hopefully you're enjoying everything as well.
0: Yeah, good. Yeah, no, not not too bad at all. Anyways, we'll uh, we'll jump straight into it, I guess. So, um the first thing I wanted to sort of talk about um, with yourself, was obviously you've stood as an MP before. It was uh, in 2015, you stood as an MP in South West Wiltshire. Um, I just sort of wanted you to tell us sort of how that was and what kind of uh, whether you'd end up maybe running again for an MP or giving it another shot at, at some time in the future.
2: Uh, no, 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 I'm no. Not, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to do that again. No, it's I, a resounding it was no. Amazing- no, I'm not going to do it again. You know, I, I've gone into academia now. I think that's my sort of area, and ultimately, I want to be promoting other people to be standing for parliament, especially from you know marginalised backgrounds, people unrepresentative in politics. I'd rather be pushing for them, and you know, me just saying what I said from the sidelines, essentially. But um, you know, I, I did that in 2015. In the 2015 general election, I wasn't expecting a a socialist revolution in the safe, conservative seat of South West Wiltshire. But, you know, it it was a very interesting experience at the time. And I think putting policies on the platform uh, for people to vote for, I think, was very important. But, you know, in 2017 and 2019, the Labour Party have done even better in South West Wiltshire. I mean, even in 2017, they got around 33 percent of the votes when, you know, before 2015, we were behind the Liberal Democrats. And I, yeah. I think like a lot of things have changed for South West Wiltshire Labour Party and hopefully they do really well. But at the end of the day, I want to see young people involved in politics. And I want, I stood at the time as a young person putting their name forward for public office, making my voice heard. And ultimately I want uh, a lot more young people to do that in the future.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, cause it was obviously 2015. So that is now, well, six, well, five and a half years ago, roughly. How old were you when you actually ran?
2: Uh, when I was initially selected as a candidate, I was uh, just about to hit nineteen. Oh so wow, Okay. When it was election day, I was nineteen years old, and um, at the hustings, which is where uh, the Labour Party select their candidate, it was me uh, and you know an, and another activist who's still involved in the party now. But to go in front of that room and for the vast majority of people in that room to say, I have confidence in a young person to stand for parliament. I thought that was a very nice thing to hear. And, you know, hopefully young people can get involved in politics no matter what their party in the future. And, you know, I myself and many other people who stood for public office in 2015 and 2017 and 2019 show that young people can be heard as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's obviously a really uh, important sort of message to carry through. I think, Sam, did you? I know Sam is um, Sam's doing uh, parliamentary studies as an extension to his degree. So, did you have any specific questions about this, Sam? Because I know it's probably uh, of greater interest to you specifically.
1: Well, I was just thinking. I was looking, I remember looking at the um, election results for that election, twenty fifteen. George, and as a party you managed to increase the vote share, didn't you, from the twenty ten elections. So that must be a bit of an accomplishment. Even though, though you said, you won't expect your social revolution the seat. but still managed to increase the vote share.
2: Yeah, I mean, beating the Liberal Democrats, uh, I think that was the that was the thing we wanted to do, because in 2015, you know, we saw what the Lib Dems did in the coalition government from austerity to tuition fees, uh, and the bedroom tax and many, many other issues. And the complete collapse of the Liberal Democrats, you know, works in our favour. And I think the campaign that so many activists did in 2015, and in elections beyond made a huge difference. And to beat the Liberal Democrats was very symbolic because then uh, essentially the Labour Party became uh, the alternative uh, the alternative party for people. UKIP managed to beat Labour in 2015 because that was the peak mm-hmm. of their popularity. But now UKIP have yep. gone. Yeah, it is now between way. the Tories and the Labour Party in South West Wiltshire. And I think so many people campaigning in those many elections have made a huge difference. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I want to see as many Labour representatives as possible. And overtaking the Liberal Democrats was so important, not just in South West Wiltshire, but places like uh, many Cornish seats and in seats all across the South West. So yeah, I was proud to be part of that campaign. And uh, uh, at the end of the day, I'm really happy of what happened.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Definitely. It's um, definitely interesting, especially at as, as, as such a young age as well. Uh, like I say, you, uh, you spoke about your sort of desire, uh, I guess. You said you weren't expecting a socialist revolution, but obviously, of course, you, you yourself, you are a sort of self-branded socialist. Um, was the 2019 election defeat and the election of a more centrist leader in Keir Starmer, do you think that represents a rejection of socialism?
2: Uh, no, no, I don't. Um, I don't think it does, because Brexit has just engulfed things in yeah. So we get the 2017 election, Brexit was a huge issue even back then. But in 2019, it was even more so. You know, when I was knocking on doors in the campaign in Leeds Northwest, in, in Oxford, in Pudsey, I didn't hear many people, if any people, say, I can't vote for Labour because they want to renationalise the railways. Or I can't vote for Labour because they want to introduce a living wage. Or, or, or we don't want to vote Labour because they want to scrap tuition fees. I just didn't hear that. But Brexit was a huge issue in 2019. And, you know, even, even to the point, like, the Brexit debate is now over. And I don't think future elections will be defined by the European question. I mean, even Keir Starmer, the the People's Vote champion, voted for Boris Johnson's hard Brexit deal. So, you know, I, I don't think this is going to be an issue anymore. But uh, it's not a rejection of socialism. It's not a rejection of socialist policies. But because time after time again polling shows popularity for policies that Jeremy Corbyn promoted and I don't think that platform should be abandoned and I mean Keir Starmer in the 2020 leadership election he had those 10 pledges which are building on Jeremy Corbyn's platform and he should stick to that because I think ultimately that'll be the path to power.
0: Yeah definitely I mean I, I, I do agree with you in the sense that uh, you know like you say the issue of Brexit in the European Union. It, in general, has dominated the political debate ever since, obviously, the referendum in twenty sixteen. I think the re- the elections since then have almost been like second and third referendums, in a sense. Um, but you mentioned the fact that you that you're sort of you know the European issue is now completely off the table, and it's it's you know that's that's out. We can put that to the side now. What do you think will be the defining issue for future elections, and how do you think Labour can achieve success that they've been so bereft of? For the last uh well ten years plus
2: I think that I think the coronavirus pandemic has really just shown how bad inequality is in this country. you know the rich have got substantially richer uh whilst the vast majority of people have had to stay at home um you know the furlough scheme you know was very important at the time, but unfortunately. You know, the government have not provided enough financial support for people, which is, which has is only widened the gap further between the working class and the rich elite. And what Labour need to do in 2024 is offer that an alternative vision to say, we've got to reduce inequality, we've got to eliminate poverty, we've got to end homelessness. And I think even in this pandemic, in the first lockdown, uh, you know, the government introduced the everyone in scheme, which essentially ended homelessness or was a was a measure which took huge uh you know it was was a policy proposal that helped tackle homelessness in the country and it just showed if the political will to tackle homelessness is there then it can be done and that's what labor needs to be doing they need to say the political will if it is there can end homelessness can end poverty and there's many many policies that hopefully uh, will be introduced by then but i think right now all of the attention is on coronavirus, and I think as the financial crash of 2008 defined the 2010 and arguably the 2015 elections, I think the coronavirus is going to impact the next election, definitely, and maybe even the election after that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Like I say, it's an important an important uh, political defining factor, especially coronavirus. Um, but obviously, you, meant, you touched on it there again, uh, about the widening social inequality as a result of, you know, the the lockdown measures that have been implemented. Now, you yourself, you, you place yourself in the pro-lockdown camp, or at least until there's uh, sort of a fight, vi- there's widespread vaccinations and things like that. Do you not find then, considering you've mentioned the fact that social inequality widens as a result of these measures that are in- introduced and are in place and have been for, for many months, do you not find that the pro-lockdown position somewhat uh, is in conflict with your socialist views.
2: Not at all, not at all, because the overwhelming scientific evidence shows lockdowns work, face masks work, social distancing work, etc. The problem is how the government responds to it, and this government has been so shambolic that we've had a huge hit to our economy and over a hundred thousand deaths. Other countries like China, Vietnam, New Zealand, Australia, and South Korea. They went Covid approach and have succeeded at the end of the day. You know, they've, they've reopened nightclubs, they were hosting a big New Year's Eve parties and their economy has made a huge bounce back and the Covid death rates are very low. So, you know, at the end of the day, being pro-lockdown, of course, isn't anti-socialist. The problem is the lack of financial support from the government. We should have gone straight away from day one Paid people to stay at home with a universal basic income to protect livelihoods, and protect businesses, and you know we should have implemented mass testing at airports, cancel rent and mortgages, waive tuition fees, you know, had the evictions ban. All of these policies would have protected the most vulnerable within society. No,
0: I mean, I like you say, I think that is a, that is a fair point, and I, I completely agree with the fact that the um, you know the government has handled it poorly. I think that's something we can agree on there. Um, but yeah, I, I think. I think it's a difficult one because at the end of the day, I think naturally, as a result of things like lockdowns and a result of businesses having to close, you're naturally going to get those, you know, those big sort of multinational corporations, the likes of Amazon, whose profit is a profits have skyrocketed throughout this whole this whole pandemic. I think it's it's surely you you can't deny that it's just there will be, regardless of how much the government tries to step in and tries to minimise this social inequality. You know, it's surely inevitably going to happen and there's inevitably going to be if you if you're forcing those who rely on being in work to stay at home surely they are just naturally there's going to be that gap is naturally going to widen would you not agree with that or would you uh, would you contest that point
2: I I do contest that point I I, I get where you're coming from uh, and if the government doesn't do anything to tackle predatory transnational corporations then of course the the gap is going to widen but if you introduce wealth taxes, if you increase taxes on the rich, if you cr- increase taxes on corporations, and during the pandemic you pay people to stay at home with a universal basic income, or, or many other policies, many other financial uh, policies to help with people like canceling rent, uh, so businesses don't have to pay rent uh, when there is a national lockdown, etc., then you don't get widening poverty, you don't get increased poverty, you don't get widening inequality. Um, but the thing is, if the government takes no action, then we are just going to see the inequalities that happened before the coronavirus pandemic, of course, because transnational corporations have only got more powerful over the last few years. The wealthy have got wealthier over the last few years. But you know that gap is just seems expanding even more. And I think that is the lack of government intervention rather than uh, uh, requiring people to stay at home to stop a deadly virus, which is killing a lot of people. And you know, again, like I said, the UK has had the bo- worst of both worlds because it's had such an overwhelmingly large death toll, but also an overwhelmingly large hit to the economy. Like we, it seems to have been that some people have been framing this in the in the in the sense of you have high deaths, but you save the economy. But yet again, China, Vietnam, New Zealand, Australia, South Korea, and many others—they haven't seen that. They have their they've had their economies reopened because they were competent with test and trace they locked down fast and they've had strict lockdowns as well and financial support was provided for many people but we've just had it so bad here and i'm sure you'll agree with me that it's just been like the government strategy has been so bad but at the end of the day the problem isn't yeah. lockdowns in itself it is the lack of government support for people
0: I um I think, I, yeah, I'd agree with, with that to an extent. Um, and I think Sam probably would as I don't want to speak for him, obviously. I mean, he is here. Um, yeah, but no, yeah, I will. No, I, I, we have, I've, you know, frequently in, in our discussions, both on this podcast yeah. and just in general, you know, mentioned the fact that, and I've said this to numerous people, the government have handed it absolutely, you know, shambolically. And I think I made the point as well, Sam, you might remember in the podcast we released yesterday, um, which we recorded on Tuesday, um, that perhaps if we had done a sort of stricter lockdown the government action had been stricter and harsher and 100%. you know we could yeah and i think we we both sort of said that didn't we um i do i do think that uh yeah like you say the government have have handled it horrifically um There's completely been, completely yeah, agree.
1: Mismanagement. yeah i, I mean even like, as said Go on, George sorry sorry um sorry so I thought I'd speak for once as simple as George <laughs> yeah. said there's been no year airports um, it's closed it was Boris closed before. us like two weeks ago it should have been one of the first things that should have happened no Tessier airports face masks took ages to be introduced they've been blinded by like just they've been yeah just incompetent throughout the whole pandemic
0: yeah exactly and, and they have been but I would I would contest the point that uh that lockdowns themselves aren't the problem. I think lockdowns are a problem insofar as the, the fallout of them, which we will not yet see, we will see in years to come. And I think the fallout from them personally, I think is gonna be absolutely devastating. And, and there has been uh, you know, some, some research into that, some academic research into that sort of, the fact that they are, it's going to be a pretty damning economic climate once we come out the other side of this. Um, and that's why I am, You know, opposed to lockdowns as a policy especially now introducing them uh, constantly and constantly just going back on ourselves and I think it is to do with government incompetence to an extent because we wouldn't have to have had these extra uh, restrictions had the government been competent in dealing with it in in the first place, I agree with you there but I do still think that this policy is going to be severely damaging for years to come
2: But many countries that did lockdown properly Their economies have essentially recovered by now, Um, and you know that's what should have happened. Rather than the rolling lockdowns of half measures and mixed messaging and trying to blame, you know, shifting the blame to the public, uh, you know, the government should have just implemented the lockdown properly. And like all of these things are just such a huge problem. And like you say, because of how this was handled, there will be a fallout for this. And you know, NHS capacity. It is bursting at the moment and people are not getting the uh, support they need but you know with the end of lockdowns that capacity would only exceed even further and fewer and fewer people would have treatment etc but you know I, I think we both agree that the government's handling of the lockdowns has just been disastrous and especially trying to blame the public even though they had uh, eat out to help out uh, they had you know they allowed people to still go into work right now when very not well ventilated areas, not mandating the use of masks until June, and many many other policies. Like it, I just don't understand. Like the, you know the thing about Eat Out to Help Out, it was a good policy, just introduced at the worst time, because we saw COVID cases rise a lot after August. In I mean, it wasn't just because of Eat Out to Help Out, but the school opening as well. Despite the education unions saying you know it's not until it's safe, and I think you know. The government's handling of it and also the lack of opposition as well is why we're in the mess we are today so but i really do hope that you know this lockdown will be the last one and if we have five hundred thousand vaccine doses a day then hopefully this could be over by hopefully two or three months i really hope so
0: yeah i mean obviously i think that's that's the uh the hope we all have i mean sam you work really? in a in a restaurant you work in a cafe don't you yeah, I still um, work at
1: the moment, just takeaways only. So that's the. Is it
0: takeaways only? But how was was uh, yeah. did you um participate in the eat out help out scheme or not?
1: Yeah, we were doing eat out to help out, and so we we're in a um a cafe which is no indoor seating. Virtually, it's all outdoor seating. So summer's our busiest months anywhere, We had queues, probably like twenty minute queues with eat out to help out in the middle of the week, and it was it was mental. We we're trying to trying to like uh, manage all the people as well.
0: Yeah, it, w- it was. Yeah, I can imagine it was pretty hectic. I mean, I. Money, I mean, I can't. I yeah, I bet the money was was great. Yeah, I. Uh, I, I can't. Um, I can't say I didn't. Uh, you know, take advantage of that scheme. I think, as I think most people did. Um, but really yeah, whether confident. or not. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah, but whether or not it was the right policy that to pursue at the time, obviously, uh, retrospectively has been uh, heavily disputed. Uh, i think and there there will obviously be some sort of uh you know there'll be a, there'll be varying debates know. into it i did actually see a uh a, a article pop up the other day saying that pubs and restaurants are actually quite low transmission environments for uh coronavirus obviously um again it's it completely depends i'd imagine on on the individual setting you know I can I, I do to an extent understand the argument that people get drunk and you know just start you know kissing everyone and you know hugging people and all this kind of stuff <laughs> well just that's run
1: around a... to
0: everything a quick snog yeah that's <laughs> that's that's you on a night out Sam I reckon that's right, me on a so, night
1: out
0: yeah. yeah that's it Prom- promiscuity there um <laughs> but yeah so um George, what do you think the exit strategy is for these lockdowns? So you mentioned the fact that obviously vaccination. I know you're actually you've been doing some uh, volunteer work, I believe, for St John's Ambulance, and you're actually going to be starting to administer some vaccinations, which is obviously great. Um, what do you think? When and how do you think we come out of this?
2: That's a, that's a very good point, and you know I think it's something that everyone on all wings needs to come up with the strategy with. Um, I don't think it's right to put an arbitrary date down now, like the government have done. So yeah. I think in the COVID briefing yesterday or the day before that, they put the date of March the eighth. I think yeah, the, eight. it's so arbitrary, and you know if they have all the measures to put in place for everything to, you know, for schools to reopen on March the eighth, then okay. I just doubt that is going to happen. So I think until then, we need to keep a strict lockdown. Uh, you know, stay at home, uh, and everything masks outside mandate the wearing of masks outside as well but also having clear messaging uh requiring you know going really well with the stay at home message because i don't think uh you know everyone has got that but again then again i don't think we should be blaming uh you know the government shifting the blame from individuals rather than their own failing strategy is not good but the exit plan mass vaccinations five hundred thousand jabs a day uh proper financial support for people including paying people to stay at home with a basic income. Mass testing at airports. How on earth are we almost a year into this pandemic and we still don't have mass testing at airports Mm, when countries like Italy did so? And like I say, cancelling rent and mortgages, waiving tuition fees, housing or homeless people, having the evictions ban back. And I even think having the daily COVID briefings back to inform people of what's happening every single day and how serious the situation is is really important because a lot of information is not talked about enough when it comes to research and lockdowns and face masks, etc. but also long COVID, you know, there's a one in six chance, according to the ONS, that 18 to 24 year olds will develop long COVID and a one in five chance that 25, uh, sorry, one in four chance that 25 to 34 year olds will develop long COVID. And like a lot of these things are just going under the radar Unfortunately, I'm not, I'm not going to say that everyone who is critical of lockdowns, you know, for financial reasons can be in with the same as the conspiracists, but it seems like the conspiracists seem to be running with a lot of things. I was in Leeds yesterday. I normally go for like a 5K walk every single day, and there were just loads of different posters saying, um, COVID isn't real because you need to get tested for it to know that you have it, which, you know, just is such an absurd thing to say. And like, vaccines will change your DNA or yeah. <laughs> you know the government are trying to control you with and promoting things like anti-semitic conspiracy theories etc like all of these things yep. are just horrible but the problem is more and more people are buying into it because just the the, the rebuttals have not been there from people so basically we need a, a huge strategy to to tackle that you know the anti-vax nonsense and Big financial support for a lot of people, and hopefully this could be done very soon. I mean, what do you think? What do you want to happen over the next two or three months? Do you reckon?
0: Well, I mean, I'm gonna say I just wanted to touch on a point you made as well. Obviously, I, I, you, you did say you did say you don't want to tarnish, you know, lockdown skeptics as uh, we've been branded with the sort of brush. And I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. I completely, completely accept the fact COVID is real. COVID is a threat. Um, I, you know, hundred percent. If if I've, the vaccine was offered to me, I would take it. You know, whatever you could put anything in me at this point, I don't care. Just get back to normal. That's that's a bad quote, that, but you know what I mean. It's um, it's something that, that you know I I I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I think that's that's the easy way to to rubbish the argument of those who question lockdowns. And I think you know me and Sam specifically, we've spoken a fair bit about this. Uh, on the podcast as well where we've just sort of said that it's there's there needs to be some more balance to the debate and, and obviously that's sort of part of the reason why I wanted to get you on because I know you, you are a very, you know, if anything, the complete antithesis to my views on this particular issue. But I do think that it's important to have a, a reasoned debate and what I think I found recently and just in in the news media and it's just all been very, very one-sided... Um, And that's the sort of problem I have with it. I don't know if you had anything else to add with that, Sam.
1: I just think that last point, I'd argue um, there seems to be a hesitancy with um, giving out any sort of good news. In the daily statistics or daily figures, you don't get, for example, discharge figures or we're only really now getting, well, within the last 10 days or so, two weeks, getting daily vaccination figures. And I think part of that would be the government's, George might be able to add this government's uh, caution of trying to promote promote too much news to so get people so people still stick to these lockdown rules. But there seems to be with the mental health aspects, you want to be able to tell people look, things are getting better.
0: Yeah, I think that's a point, and at, we'll go back to the, the. I'll answer the question directly that George asked me about where where I see it us going, where I want us to go, the direction I want us to go. I'm not going to be a politician. I'm not going to avoid the question. Um, uh, firstly i want to see children back in schools because i think that it's hugely hugely important for children to be back in schools and i think online learning just doesn't really scratch the surface in the mul- in most cases you know for instance you know my yeah i mean in my home situation i'm not at home as in my family home i'm not i'm not there at the moment but you know uh, where where my mum lives she's got she's got four kids living with mm-hmm. her they're all in they're all at school or in sixth form and you know not enough rooms really in the house to be doing this sort of online learning so it's it's quite detrimental i think in the in in the long term for young people children and their education um, which is obviously massively important so i want to see kids go back to school i want to see that i want to see that happen like as soon as as soon as possible obviously whether you want to vaccinate teachers or not is is a, another sort of issue but um yeah, that's. The, I think that's the first sort of thing. I think that's that is going to be the first thing. It seems the government strategy is that's got to be the first, uh, you know, hurdle to get over is getting children back into schools, and then from that, I guess we just have to see where in which direction it goes in terms of vaccinations.
2: So, on that, the, pro- the problem is the problem with reopening schools is that when we reopened schools in September, we saw the R eight go up. By quite a bit, and we're not currently in a position where you know I'm not going to put words into your mouth, of course. Um, but you know, because you didn't you didn't say it an exact day. No, but yeah, yeah. If we open the schools, let's say in the next couple of weeks, the R rate is not low enough for that to be safe, and I, you know I wouldn't trust the reopening of schools until the education unions say it, because with the new UK variant, is much more infectious, especially amongst younger people. So that's something to worry about. But you know, if we have 500,000 jabs a day, then a a huge part of the population, I think over 30 million people by March, would be vaccinated. So I mean, when would you want to see schools reopening? Would it be in the next few weeks or until a lot of people have been vaccinated?
0: I think it needs to be up to personal choice of the, the parents and the children at the end of the day. And I think if you're a parent who's in a really difficult situation with having to homeschool your child, uh, and you know you can be given the option to send them back if you're a parent who's more, you know, worried about it. Because at the end of the day, that the main the main problem with schools is mainly obviously it's the teachers as well who who feel they might be putting themselves at risk. But it's also the 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 children who might be going, you know, potentially getting it at school, being asymptomatic as most children are, and passing it on to family members. So I think it should be a personal choice, really. I know you can still send children to school there at a vulnerable. Um, state, but obviously it will be interesting to see whether the government actually decide to push on with this sort of vaccinating teachers putting them as a priority group, and I think if that's the way forward then I would fully support that I fully support any policy that gets children back into school sooner rather than later because the reality is that the damage this is going to have on you know, not, not every child, I'm sure there are some schools that are providing first rate online education but for the majority of people it's probably not going to be like that and I think it's uh, any policy that will get children back into schools as soon as possible is, uh, is one that I would support and then how that's going to manifest itself I don't yet know but we will see, I'm sure, oh, the in, only, in the coming weeks.
2: The what about you, Sam? Because, because you know, I do ask end. this. Yeah, go on, Sam. Go on, Sam.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll, just, sorry, I'll just build on Connor's point. The only uh, criticism I have would be sending, if parents feel, if parents want to send their kids back, send them back, sort of argument. Um, my mum works at a primary school. Um, first lockdown wasn't, it was open, it was called Kingsley's, Kingsley Cares, which is a school that she works at, um, and it was fetched just just uh, key workers' children for six hours a day, looking after them. Yeah. Um, so there was only 30, 30 children that first lockdown, when it was uh, re- re-announced a month or so ago that it'd be a national lockdown again, schools won't be open. Um, there was 90 children that came into the kingsley cares and that was predominantly because of the argument that the head teacher was like look if you want to send your children in not that none of this lies but parents were claiming that they were key workers or the children the children had to go into school the children had to go into school and it resulted yeah. in a mini little not outbreak but lots of a few cases started popping up at the school where in the first lockdown there was no cases so i think i i would argue get teachers vaccinated wait i don't agree with the the government's 8th of March strategy, because I think that's what they've done so much around the whole lot of time. They set a date they're then tied to that date. And it resulted in things not being quite right, or being right at all. So I'd argue wait until Easter, just leave it as long as possible, but still get kids in for at least some of the rest of the academic year.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, it's an interesting point. And obviously you, you can speak from from personal experience um there but it's an interesting thought i was reading a few um sort of academic studies and things like that um one in particular coming from um from ben david who is i believe is a scholar uh in denmark and he essentially said that you know these sort of non-pharmaceutical interventions in coming in the form of school closures actually sort of have very serious harms and this is the argument that i go along with in the sense that it's it's damaging for children's education uh, children's development and also I think the social impact of, of that as well you know that you can't underestimate the how much it impacts children not to just be seeing their friends and things at school I know you know you might argue there's more pressing issues at hand but I think it's it's so important for children to have that social interaction and it's so hard at the moment when they're not getting it I'd imagine that's quite taking its toll on quite a few people. Um, but yeah, I mean, George, what do you think about this whole eighth of March thing? Do you think it's something the government are going to uh, U-turn on, as they have uh, on so many policies, or do you think that they are now tied to that date, as Sam suggested?
2: I just think that no, not that target, or they are going to reach that target. It, they will be doing it very dangerously, and I think they're doing eighth of March, no matter no more. Then this is. People will lose their lives prematurely, and again, the economy will be hit as well. Because if we don't do the lockdown properly, then we'll just have a big economy and also huge number of deaths. And the fact we are at 100,000 deaths should be a huge shame on this government. And I don't understand how Boris Johnson is still in the position he is, given everything that has happened. But you know, the 8th of March, if he can do five hundred thousand vaccines a day, if he can give proper financial support for people, if he can do mass testing at airports and all the things that we've talked about, then you know what? If that can be achieved, then it can be achieved. But I just think when he promised to, you know, say the lockdown would only be so long and then it lasted for quite a while and that would be it. But then we didn't do anything to stop the second wave. We've reopened schools too early, when the education union said no, we had to ease out to help out. We had all of these things and we ended up with a disastrous second wave where so many more people have died, you know, I just don't trust this government on anything. And also the lack of opposition has been shameful as well, but you know, the sooner this is over, uh, the better. And you know, like you you mentioned about the volunteer vaccination scheme, St John Ambulance They've had around, I believe, over 30,000 people apply to be volunteer vaccinated. Fantastic. And I would encourage anyone who is eligible to do it, you get full training, about over 20 hours of training for free. You've trained face as well, and you can be eligible to vaccinate people. So I think anyone who can do it, please do consider doing it because it could end this, this nightmare as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, that is definitely, I mean, fully, I would support that, um, you know, vaccinations are the way the way out of this mess, it would appear, and you know, credit to you, George, obviously, for being involved with that scheme and I would, yeah, greatly encourage maybe I'll have a look at it myself. Who knows? Um, Excellent. Yeah, maybe I will. Um sort of another I, I don't want it to be like a massive lockdown debate, but I feel like it's it's such a big issue it's hard to get away from it. Um what does the how easy it has been for the government to impose such measures, you know, such draconian measures as not being able to see your your close family and friends. Does that not slightly worry you um, and the implications that might have for you know democracy and just general freedom in this country? Is that not you know a slightly worrying precedent how easy it has been for the government to implement these measures or do you think at the end of the day they're completely justified?
2: I think at this time when it's a global pandemic when other countries have done it you know, the, the sense of we are all in this together. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> a quote, widely attributed to David Cameron. But, you know, the, yeah. the, the idea that we are all in this and like staying at home, looking after each other and being part of a community, even though we can't see each other, we still know we're in a community. You know, I think th- this is why the lockdown, at least in the first case, has been you know, so effective with, with lots and lots and lots of people. Have been com- complying with this lockdown, or at least previous lockdowns. The problem is, I, I get where you're coming from, like the potential of a government to do this in future. But yeah. if there was no justification for a government to do it, then the people just would not comply with it. There is no reason why a government would force people to stay at home. At the end of the day, because at the end of the day, they have a massive hit to the economy whilst doing it. So there would be no reason for them to do it. And if there was a future a government that could implement these draconian measures, then all it would take is for people to say, no, I don't I don't want to do this. And there's no reason to stay at home. People won't stay at home. But there is a reason to stay at home yeah. right now. I, no, yeah, died, et but- yeah
0: I, I mean, I get where you're coming from there. The only reason I brought that point up in particular was the fact that you've got people like Chris Whitty, uh, I think it was sort of a few weeks back, now where he, he sort of came on and said, oh, well, we might have to do another lockdown as in winter 2021. Uh, it seems for some people, and I've seen this sort of grievance expressed on uh, on... Social media channels that I'm on and things like that. People going, well, when is this? When is this going to end? You know, is there going to be the vaccine rolled out fully, and then oh, are we going to suddenly get the government telling us that there's a new variant and the vaccine is inefficient uh, at protecting against this new variant? Do do you sort of see where I'm coming from in that sense? It could, you know, almost for some people, it appears that it might end up going on indefinitely.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm scared of lockdown fatigue really setting in because if lockdown fatigue happens and there's a new infectious strain, then, you know, a lot of people are going to die. I understand what people mean and they are terrified of, you know, this going on for years and years and years and years. The thing is, with mass vaccination rollout and, you know, vaccine for, I mean, that can be changed within four to six weeks, you know, I don't think we'll see that at least in a few years time. I just hope that we can deal with it right now. So we don't have to go into another lockdown in the winter. But if we have this government in charge that are going to deal with this strategy so badly, then we I think we will end up with, with more lockdowns because they're so incompetent. But at the end of the day, like if lockdown fatigue sets in, people are going to die. And I just I just I'm yeah I I understand why people because I just cannot wait for things to be normal again. I honestly yep. cannot wait to go back to the key club or Stone Roses, like, like yeah ah oh, Stone there. Roses are
0: many a good night in there <laughs> Sam haven't we beautiful <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> but like I just can't wait for that to be back open but it's just not safe to do so but I yeah. think lockdowns will go on forever if we have a clear strategy but I don't know I don't know do you think this is going to go on, go for, on. for a long time
0: go on Sam you were going to say something
1: there I'll answer George's question quickly um, I hope not I think it like you said it relies upon uh, people not getting lockdown fatigue I think, in my opinion, government shouldn't be. You mentioned earlier about government blaming people, blaming the public, and I've the recent ads of looking into their eyes. In my opinion, do that. Um, I think they should be doing at the moment is focusing to prevent lockdown fatigue by potentially using these advertising agencies or this advertising space to say this is coming, this is what it will be like soon. Just stick to it. So I hope to have a su- a baby normal summer if they can reach these vaccination targets but obviously i'm not expecting to be living like they are in australia anytime soon yeah i
0: hope so i mean i got a weekend booked away with the missus in edinburgh for for august so that's so no, <laughs> hope no, that no, goes but no. no um yeah no I, I agree with that point and and i i maybe an interesting point you might want to touch on this as well george um is the fact that i think sam mentioned it briefly earlier as well is the fact that there's it's very doom and gloom the government message i know it's a gloomy scenario i know it's a bad situation to be in of course you don't need to be reminded of that but i I do not think it's somewhat you know damaging that they're not publishing these sort of the the figures around vaccinations for instance which could give people real hope for the future And, and actually i think if if you're handing these figures to people and you're saying, well, look, this is where we're going and the vaccination programme is going quite well, Um, this is where we're going and this is the route out of lockdown, do you not think that that could actually encourage compliance slightly more? Rather than, you know, just going doom and gloom and saying, oh, this many people have died. I'm not saying don't report the people who have died, but, you know, have some sort of balance to it. You know, say, well, this many people have died. It's obviously tragic, but this many people have vaccinated against it. Um, And, you know, we're, we're making progress towards coming out of this scenario and getting back to normal lives. Do you not think that could potentially encourage compliance to a greater extent?
2: That's a very good point. I think a light at the end of the tunnel approach would be really, really positive. Um, the problem is if you give too much you know, if you give people false hope then that thing i think will only have uh problems in the long term but if we say we're vaccinating so many people um people are going to be protected and they you know this could be over in two or three months then yeah I think maybe there could be better compliance but you know I think the vast majority of people are complying with the lockdown rules at the moment i mean you do, you do get you do get some idiots like was it 400 people in in a school hall in the middle of a lockdown? I think that that's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. But at the end of yeah. the day, like the vast majority of people are complying, are staying at home, or are acting within the lockdown rules. So, you know, I I I think like the end of the tunnel approach, if done correctly, would be good. But do I trust this government on messaging? No, not at all. Oh
0: uh, yeah, yeah. I, mean I agree I agree, uh, yeah. I mean, I agree. I agree with that again. I
2: agree. I agree with that again.
0: Uh, To an extent, obviously, the government are handling it pretty poorly as well. And it's quite hard to, you know, trust the government. You've you've brought that up quite a lot. Yeah, I don't trust the government, which is fair enough. Uh, I don't blame you. I don't particularly trust them either. I think that's an area we can agree on. Um, I'm conscious of the fact we've spoken about COVID and lockdown for a very long time. And our listeners are probably... Uh, you know, gutted with this, the whole uh, <laughs> hearing about this constantly. I'll ask you one, one last question. Of course, I'm pressed, for Simon. I, I feel I've taken up more of your time than I than I have warranted uh, to do so. Um, can Keir Starmer be the next prime minister?
2: I hope so. I think he's just got to do a lot of things differently because I think so far he's had a really, really bad start as leader. You know, he failed to condemn the white supremacist Smith. He's failed to tackle the poison of transphobia and has not taken action against Rosie Duffield after she's made numerous treatments on trans rights that have been condemned by LGBT plus organisations, yet she still was the whip. You know, he stood as the unity candidate in the 2020 uh, leadership election, but has divided his party by removing the whip from Corbyn. He's constantly abstained on key issues and his lack of opposition to the COVID strategy has been awful. He waited two weeks to respond to an important report on Islamophobia by the Labour Muslim Network. He called Black Lives Matter a moment, he refused to stand with the Colston statue protesters, and he listened to the Tories over the teachers on school closures. Like, at the end of the day, these are all, like, failures of leadership, and it, it is terrible. But I do want him to do better. If he can deal with the poisonous transphobia, if he can unite the party, if he can build in his ten pledges, if he stops abstaining, then I think a lot of people will get behind it. But if he can't yeah. do that, then I think we need to replace him with someone that will. So, but you know, just, he needs to do so much better. Otherwise, someone else should be there.
0: Yeah, he does. Sam, what, what, do you have any particular thoughts now? I've never actually asked you that. What do you, what do you think? Can, can Kierstarmer does he give off prime minister right. vibes? <laughs>
1: I'm not sure about Prime vibes yet, but I I see him as being a serious contender. Whether Boris Johnson's standing as a Tory candidate in 2024, we'll have to wait and see. I highly doubt it, but he can e I throughout the whole mispelled of the he can he can stand as a viable candidate in 2024. But like George, said, he's got to build on what he's done. My dad, for example, he's voted Tory most of his life. He said that he'd probably he would back Keir Starmer, so he could tap into this sort of. Group of to- traditional Tory voters that may not like the direction of the party.
0: It's the kind of Whatever, uh, group so. that Blair that yeah. Blair
1: managed to get, isn't it? Really, it's that it's that exact group. Yeah.
2: Do, do you both reckon Boris Johnson will be the Conservative leader in the twenty twenty four election?
0: Sam, you're a Conservative member,
1: so let us know.
2: <laughs> I
1: think it'll be. I hardly doubt it. I think he will face a leadership election as soon as this is our past us. And I, part of me would like to see Rishi as leader. Whether that actually happens, we have to wait and see.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point, and yeah, again, I would be inclined to agree with that. I can't see Boris Johnson standing for uh, at the next election in 2024. I think if he
1: stands it, he's not win- he's not winning it. If he stands it, put it that way.
0: Yeah, I think the the, the memory of this whole crisis will will even though it be hopefully uh, in in the past. We hope so anyway, even though it'll be in the past by that point. Um, I think the memory will still yeah. be strong and it will still be there for, for a lot of people. But just to go back to the Keir Starmer thing, it, it's quite a contentious thing for me because his views and his stance within the Labour Party is very much similar to my own. I am, you know, I'm a Labour Party member, but I would put myself firmly on the sort of centre left, uh, you know, spectrum, if you like. Um, but I don't like him as a leader. I think he's a poor leader, and and I'd agree with a lot of things you said, uh, George, in your critique of him. I think he's too much of a fence-sitter, and he's not effective at holding the government to account. You know, I think we we, we kind of have different views on what particular issues he should have held the government to account on, but I think still the very base of the fact is that he is the leader of the opposition. He is paid to oppose the government, uh, and he just hasn't been doing that effectively. And that's where my my real reservations come with Keir Starmer. I think he gives off more of a of a prime ministerial aura than Jeremy Corbyn. I'm sure you might well contest that, George. Um, but I yeah I don't I don't fully back him. I find myself currently at a very difficult uh, sort of crossroads where I I struggle to identify. I don't identify with the Conservative Party um, really at all, and I'm struggling to get behind a leader who I don't think is fit to lead the Labour Party I don't know what your thoughts are George obviously you're a member as well
2: yeah no I think Labour member to Labour member like um, you know if, if Keir Starmer cannot change on those examples like I've said somebody else should lead and I suppose the question is who would be your ideal leader or at least somebody who could force a leadership challenge who do you think you would have hypothetically at least
0: I mean, I really don't know. I really there's there's a multitude of candidates. I just I think it needs to be someone who knows their principles. Firstly, because I feel like Keir Starmer's struggling with that um, at the moment. He's struggling to to know how to actually question the government, and he I feel like he's so conscious of the fact that he wants to appeal to these voters that Labour lost in 2019 that he doesn't want to critique the government who those people voted for. And he's, he's that's why he, he treads on eggshells and he waits until it goes wrong to actually say oh this has gone wrong I remember I saw an interview on Radio, Radio 4 hindsight. yeah Captain Hindsight as Boris Johnson famously has dubbed him but I think it's a pretty accurate de- de- description of him to be fair you know I, I, John McDonnell I think was on uh, Radio 4 the other day and he was saying he was criticizing the out help out scheme as, as we've briefly mentioned and um, the, the Radio 4 presenter who was interviewing him, I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, but he, he said, well, did you condemn it at the time? And John McDonald said, no. And I think that's the perfect epitome of what this sort of Starmer uh, you know, Labour Party has been like. it's It waits for things to go wrong. And then once they do, says, oh, well, you shouldn't have done that. It's all very well and good saying that, but unless you're offering an alternative option at the time, then what's the point? Um, but yeah, with regard to who the, who the next leader is, I, I I don't have any specific candidate in mind. And I mean i I'll, I'll happily back Keir Starmer like you say if he if he um if he cleans his act up a little bit in terms of actually providing viable opposition to the Conservatives. But I mean did you have anyone else in mind, particularly George?
2: Um like I say, you know, I want Keir Starmer to succeed, but if he does not do those things, then you know I do think There should be a challenge. And one of the few MPs who I think could get the 20% of nominations to become Labour Leader, um, you know, the Socialist Campaign Group, you need you need around 40 MPs for a challenge. The Socialist Campaign Group is around 30 MPs. So you need somebody who can get the socialist campaign group and somebody you could appeal to the soft left types. And one of the few MPs who I think could get the nominations and would do a really good job is Dawn Butler. Because Dawn Butler, yep. if you combine the deputy leadership nominations and, you know, what Richard Bergen got as well, you would easily get the 40 MPs, and at the end of the day, she's been solid on coronavirus, she's been solid on uh, minority rights, especially trans rights, and I think having the first woman leader of the Labour Party, first BAME leader of the Labour Party as well, I think would be symbolically important, and I think she would be just a really great leader, so, you know, if yeah. cannot clean up his act, I really hope uh, you know, Dawn Butler might challenge.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a fair point, and um, I do. I think, like I say, it's. I, if anything, I just want someone who knows their their ideology really and knows where they want the direction they want to take the party. And Keir Starmer gives me a sort of confused aura. Uh, if if anything else, he doesn't give me a sort of clear direction. So the
1: opposite to uh, Corbyn.
0: Yeah, In he Cor- is.
1: You knew where Corbyn stood. You don't. know where Starmer stands.
0: Yeah, but that's the thing. Is yeah, exactly. As much as I. As much as I didn't particularly uh, agree with uh, some of Jeremy Corbyn's policies, you know he was a, he was a clear, you know this is where I stand and this is what I will do and this is what the country will look like under my uh, prime ministership and and at least he had clear ideology that people could either subscribe to or, or you know reject. Um, Whereas Keir Starmer, I think it's hard to know at times. You know, he's he's obviously he's dubbed a red Tory, um, and and all this kind of thing. And and I can completely understand that because, like I say, he doesn't clarify his position enough, and he and he doesn't criticise the government when the the opportunity is there to criticise the government. He he seemingly misses it. He just it's like a striker in football having an open goal. Uh, you know, controlling it, running up the other end, and shooting past his own goalkeeper at times—it's really frustrating to watch.
2: He needs to show where he stands, deal with the issues that we've talked about, and if he doesn't, then having someone like Dawn Butler, who is a, a avid socialist, you know where she stands, and. She really would do great things for the country, you know. I think that could be a good alternative, but you know, if, yeah. if it is the choice between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak, then you know, I'll, I'll take Keir Starmer. But you know, he does need to do a lot more.
0: At the end, of, yeah. At the end of the day, I will. Um, I'll happily support any Labour leader who has a viable chance of ousting the Conservatives from power. Much, much to Sam's uh, disgust, I'm sure that that comment. But uh, <laughs> no, but there I'm we go. The Yeah, (laughs) it will bring that. It will message me after this and just say, "Why are you slacking off?" I said that. Nah, you're just as bad a critic as I am of the current administration. I think. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll, well, um go on.
2: I was going to say, because I listened to your first podcast, you did a tweet of the week. Do you have? We did. Okay.
0: Well, do do you have one lined up, George?
2: I do indeed. I do indeed. Fantastic. Would you like to take us through it? Absolutely. So Elon Musk said, I'm going to be donating a hundred million dollars towards a prize for the best carbon capture technology. And Cody Johnson replied, congratulations to whoever wins for it, who invents (laughs) (laughs) forests.
0: That is a a very succinct and blunt reply. I enjoy that. That's a good. That is a well, uh, uh, a tree. A nominal entry. Yeah, whoever invents trees. There we go. <laughs> Sam, did you have? Did you have one up your sleeve?
1: Uh, it's a screenshot from a TikTok. Right. Um, Here we go. And it says, there we go, "It's just, it's just it I just maybe check a little bit. It was a rushed entry when I was preparing for the pod this morning. Um, President Trump has zero COVID cases in his first week of presidency. Biden has over two hundred thousand. It just doesn't when people <laughs> up there to believe that. That's phenomenal. That is,
0: yeah. I think I saw that as well. To be fair, um, but yeah, I, my, my entry was. That's uh, pretty poor. It's not even that funny. It's just painfully uh, humiliating. Was the headline Boris Johnson says sorry for 100,000 COVID cases, uh, uh COVID death? Sorry, yes. and yeah, I quote. I quoted it with the. Um, in between us in between us clip of jay in the Ooh. car <laughs> oh sorry oh sorry yeah uh, you know, that one so yeah, if you want to see quality content like that it's at Connorjl underscore on twitter just any any uh opportunity to my Twitter. Time. i forgot to mention as well now you mentioned the fact that we tweeted a week i did we didn't actually talk about what we were drinking at the start of the pod which is the whole premise of this podcast and i've just completely lost it um <laughs> sam what are you drinking I might, I might edit this bit out and put it well, at the start. So, what were you drinking, Sam?
1: <laughs> All right, I've gone for a local, we went with Kirksal Brewery, which locals for Leeds, um, in the last pod. So I've gone with Dark Star Brewery, which is just down the road from the Horsham. Lovely, enjoying it? Lovely, enjoying it? It's
0: lovely, it's a hoppy golden ale. Lovely, it's a hoppy golden, golden ale. There we go. Uh, George, have you got a drink or is George, it? Is it, a non-alcoholic, it is a non-alcoholic beverage?
2: Non-alcoholic beverage. Uh, non-alcoholic uh, Aldi double-strength double, <laughs> double strength squash apple and blackcurrant for me. Can't go wrong there.
0: Lovely. You can't go wrong. Hopefully, uh, hopefully Aldi will sponsor us <laughs> off no the Audi back of that. I went for a bit of a decadent uh, choice. Uh, choice. It's a Magic, eight, it's ball a black magic IPA eight Ball Black IPA from Magic Rock Brewing, and, magic it was, Rot right. and it was it's alright. It's like Guinness, but a bit more bitter. So, um, so there you um, go. That was my choice again. That brings to an end the Pint of Politics podcast episode three. We're already on three episodes within a week. We have really spoiled you uh, here. I'd like to thank George for joining us, taking time out of his day. Um, to discuss some really important issues with us and he's had some really good opinions You might agree with him. You might agree with me. Um, that's the beauty of debate uh, And I'm glad to have had someone on who I could have a really good discussion with and I'm sure Sam will echo that um, about you know Important issues of the day. So George, thank you very much for joining us
2: but Yeah, no, thank you very much. I really appreciate that and uh, follow me on Twitter at George Ayler and TikTok.
0: At George (laughs) Aylor. There we go. A little plug there. I'll leave that in. I won't edit that bit out. (laughs) Sam, any 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 closing remarks from you, Sam?
1: No. Thank you for coming on George. It's great you being the first guest. It's a great debate. Yeah, good answer to questions as well.
0: Yeah, I mean the first guest—that's that's that's, that's an honor in itself. Obviously, this this you can once we've got like a thousand viewers per episode, you can say, "Oh well, I was the first one, <laughs> first guest to go on there." laugh a little bit, <laughs> but there you go. So yeah, thank you very much for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have. Feel free to give it a share. Yeah, follow us on Twitter. It We're it, yeah. at a pint of politics on Twitter. Uh, and follow our website as well, which is, of course, uh, a pint of politics dot We're also on LinkedIn, pint of politics. We'll be back again next week for some more episodes for you. Like I say, if you enjoyed this, give it a share. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us and sticking around. Take care.